Hey there, Fairfax Bible. It's great to be with you today. Uh, as has already been said, my name is Tony Caffey, and um, yeah, I'm excited to get into God's Word with you today. So do this with me. This is Fairfax Bible Church, so I know that you are accustomed to studying God's Word. Go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking this morning at Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. And as you're turning there, allow me, if I could, just to extend greetings to all of you here from my home church, from Harvest Decatur. It is a great thing to be a part of not just a local church, but the church universal. All of those believers throughout the world, throughout time and history. But I, I feel a special connection to Fairfax because um, we are sister churches in the Great Commission Collective. And um, to also, that your church is not that much younger than our church. We planted in 2008, and I think Hang was telling me you planted nine years ago, and so we're just a little older than you. We have been, I think, collectively the beneficiaries of church planting initiatives by other people, and we have the opportunity as churches now to be benefactors of other churches that are being planted. And so we have a cooperation that is um, part of the GCC, the Great Commission Collective, and it's my great joy to be a part of that with other churches as we work to plant churches together. So I'm excited to be here because of that. I'm also excited to be here because Hang and Conaday are two of my dearest friends. I love them. I'm glad they're here. I'm glad that they are a part of Fairfax Bible. I'm glad Fairfax Bible is a part of their lives. And I've been really encouraged to spending time with them and talking with them about their work here and the work that you're doing in the D.C. area. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be praying for your church and praying for Hang and Conaday as uh, you continue to seek God's guidance for Fairfax and beyond. Let's do this, if we could. Could we stand together for the reading of God's Word? And you can just listen if you'd like as I read it or if you want to follow along with me as I read in your text, Church of God, this is the Word of God. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we give you praise. This church is gathered now 
to sing to you and to study your word because you are worthy of our worship. God, receive it now. And God, I pray that you would give us insight into your word right now. Not so that we are just hearers, but we are doers. Help us to apply these truths into our lives, into our hearts, into our souls, Lord. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And let's say amen together if you agree with me. Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat. This psalm I preached this summer at my church in Harvest Decatur as part of a series called A New Look at the Old Testament, where we as elders all took Old Testament passages and preached and talked about the New Testament implication of an Old Testament passage, and also, you know, applicationally, how those Old Testament passages are lived out in our lives. And I got a chance to preach several Old Testament passages, but this was my favorite, Psalm 8. And it's because of a season of life I was going through. I, it was at the end of September that I preached this, and I spent almost the entire month of September sick. I was vacationing with my wife's family in Croatia, and I got some kind of crazy, crazy Croatian virus. I don't know what it was, but I got sick for like two weeks. And then I got back home, and just when I was about to start preaching again at my church, I got COVID. Actually, like a third of our church all got COVID together. And when I got COVID, I was out for about a week, sick, um, energy depleted, and I I felt really, really weak. And so, and and Psalm 8 helped me. And one of the things that I see in Psalm 8, one of the things that I want to convey to you is just how weak and frail we are as human beings. That's, that's That's what I want to relate to you. Does that sound fun? I mean, it's going to be fun. The really fun part about this psalm is not talking about how weak we are, but how majestic and glorious our God is. And that makes it all okay, even when our frailty is exposed. The title for this message today from Psalm 8 is, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And and that title is, for me, it's an homage to Rich Mullins, one of my heroes in a song. He's wrote and sang many years ago, we are not as strong as we think we are. And, you know, I thought I learned that lesson before I got sick, but I've, I really learned it this summer. And, and you know, that title, I'm, I'm a little cautious with that title, I'm a little worried about that title, because I give you that title, we are not as strong as we think we are after reading Psalm 8, and, and some of you right now, the title's too good, because you're like, okay, I got it, I, you don't even need to preach anymore, yeah, we feel that too, in D.C. area. We are not as strong as we think we are. I am not as strong as I think I am. You know, what was great, it was kind of a mercy as I was dealing with COVID this summer because not only was I dealing with, with it, but I, like I said, a third of our church was dealing with it. So it was kind of a gracious thing. We were all sick and miserable together in the family of God. And so I started to text some people in our church just to check on them and see how they were doing as they were dealing with sickness. And uh, I don't know, I felt kind of guilty too, like maybe, maybe I gave them COVID, I don't know. And I texted one person whose, her family was, everybody was sick. I said, how are you doing right now? And she wrote back to me in this text message, one word. She said, I feel puny right now. Puny. And I thought, you know, I thought that was a misspelling of something. You know how you type something on your iPhone and it corrects it for you and sends it off? I thought she meant to say pukey, really. Like my kids are throwing up all over the place and 
So I, I asked her, puny? Is that what you meant to say? And she said, yes, I feel small and frail and weak right now. And even as she sent me that text message, as I read it on my phone, I said to myself, that's exactly how I feel right now. That is exactly how I feel right now. Because I've got this thing inside of me, this bug that I can't even see, that has me in bed and I can't get out of bed. And I don't like feeling like that. I, I like to think of myself as a strong person in the prime of life. But in that moment, in the month of September, I felt puny. I felt puny. And you know what helped me with that? You know what helped me as I dealt with my puniness? Psalm 8 helped me. This psalm helped me. It anchored me to the reality of who I am and who God is. And I wanted to help you this morning, especially those of you who might be struggling or suffering through something right now. You need Psalm 8 this morning. And some of you right this morning, I feel, I feel great. This is the best time of my life. Well, okay. Log this away. Because you might need this. In fact, I would say it more definitively. You will need this sometime in your life. Psalm 8. So go ahead and write this down. You know, if you have a digital device, you might write this down. Or if you have a photographic memory, just take a snapshot of this as it's projected behind me. I'll give you three reasons that we are not as strong as we think we are. The first reason is because God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. We are not as strong as we think we are because God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. We are not as strong as we think we are because God is all-powerful. And this, this is a great comfort. We are not as strong as we think we are, but God is stronger than our wildest imagination of Him. We don't even realize how all-powerful God is. And a moment of understanding our weakness helps us to grasp God in His power. And that's part of David's point in this psalm. Just look how he, look how he sandwiches this great psalm. Psalm 8 with the first verse and the last verse. Look at verse 1. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I used to sing this when I was a kid. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's how the psalm starts. But look, that's not the only place where that shows up. Look at the end of the psalm. Same verbiage. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is what's called in Hebrew poetry an inclusio, the first and the last statement. Everything in between that sandwich, everything between those two slices of bread is, is framed by that first and that, sec, that last verse. It's like a sovereignty sandwich, everything in this psalm. And we might feel powerless and we might feel weak and frail, but... Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice 2 in verse 1 and verse 9, there are two words for Lord. There's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh in Hebrew, the Old Testament God of the Israelites. And then there's a second Lord. The first Lord is the covenant name for God. And you know, Yahweh, we know Yahweh is the Trinitarian deity that chose us, loved us, bought us with Christ's blood in the New Testament era. So we can say like the Old Testament Israelites, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord. We can say that just like the Israelites. The second Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is a different Hebrew word. It's Adonai. 
And it's a word that means sovereign ruler or powerful one. And what's marvelous about that second Lord is the, the possessive pronoun attached to it. Our Lord. So it's not like, okay, God, Yahweh, he's, he's way over there. He's, he does his thing and we're over here and Yahweh, the Lord. It's not just that. Like he's so far removed from us, we don't even have access to him. I love the refrain here because it's, oh Lord, our Lord. He's our Lord. He's our sovereign ruler. He's our God and he's proud to call himself that. He is imminent and transcendent both. And he's our God. Yahweh is our Lord. Listen, Fairfax Bible, when you pray to God, do you talk like this? Do you think of him this way? My God, our God, the God who created the universe has a relationship with me through Jesus Christ, my Savior. That is a marvel. I don't even know how we pray sometimes. You just think about that and think and think, and you never get over thinking about it. Look at the second half of verse 1 just to emphasize this. David says, you, Yahweh, have set your glory above the heavens. So stay with me for a second. Let's just think together about the expanse of the universe, okay? Just, just take a journey with me. Think about the, the sun and the moon, these, these cosmic luminaries in the sky. Think about the stars. Think about the billions and billions of galaxies and suns. And we're just a dinky little planet here, really, in, in the universe. Our sun is just a, you know, medium-sized sun compared to the stars that are in the solar system. Think about how glorious and powerful the world is. Think about how infinitesimal you feel if you've ever, you know, looked at pictures in the Hubble telescope and seen all the galaxies displayed. We are so small, and God has put all of these galaxies in place. And it's not like God is as big as the galaxy or anything. No, God cannot even be spatially contained in the galaxies. He is bigger than those galaxies. And this is the God that we pray to and say, Oh, Lord, our Lord. Charles Spurgeon famous Baptist preacher from more than 100 years ago, British. He said this. You can read this on the screen. He says, Astronomy shows us what an insignificant being, a human being, appears amidst the immensity of creation. Wow, that makes me feel humble. Though He is an object of the paternal care, God's care, we are, and the mercy of the Most High, yet He, man, is but a grain of sand to the whole earth when compared with the myriads of beings that people, the amplitudes of creation, seven billion people and counting, right? Spurgeon says, what is the whole of this globe, earth, in comparison of the hundred millions of suns and worlds which by the telescope have been glimpsed? What are they in comparison with the glories of the sky? Imagine if Spurgeon had access to the Hubble telescope right now. Imagine what he would write. I mean, he would just, wow, just write even more marvelous. Imagine if David had access to the Hubble telescope, the poetry he would produce after seeing the expanse of the galaxies. And this is the God, that God who created all of these galaxies, all of these stars, all of these planets. He's the God that we converse with. He's the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die a bloody, gruesome death on the cross so that we might be saved. 
What a marvel. And by the way, when you get saved, everybody here, have you believed in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection? Have you received the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers? When you do that, I'll just tell you, you don't, you don't come to Jesus and then make Jesus your personal assistant. Y'all with me? You know, he's not like your consultant, like, oh, Jesus, I'm glad you're here. Now you can do all those things I couldn't do on my own, and you can do it for me. Awesome. He's not your buddy-buddy. He's not your co-pilot. If the Bible is true, and I believe the Bible is true, this is what it says about Jesus, the book of Colossians. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is the Jesus who died on a cross to save your soul. So when you come to him, it's like, you, you are my Lord. You are my, my life is yours. You, you're in charge. That's the way salvation works. So we are not as strong as we think we are because God's majesty, thankfully, overwhelms and overpowers us. But also, secondly, we are not as strong as we think we are. And here's the paradoxical work of God. God uses the weak to embarrass the strong. God uses the weak to embarrass the strong. David writes this in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. I think this, Psalm 8 verse 2, I think this is autobiographical what David is writing here. Because you think about David's life, you know, he was the youngest in his family. He was from the smallest tribe. He was from the podunk city of Bethlehem, you know, just a tiny little town. And yet David became this this great king, the greatest king in Israel's history. God used little old David to silence the giant Goliath, right? God used little old David to humble and embarrass the great king Saul. And God made the weak young David, the strong king David, to fight Israel's foes and to steal the enemy and the avenger. See that at the end of verse 2. And, and avenger here, I've got I to gotta just define this term in, in our modern-day avenger world, Right? This is not a good word. This is not a good term. These are those who are taking vengeance upon David and upon the Israelites. Not superheroes, bad guys. God used little old David, the weak, to embarrass the strong. And here's something that, the old, that this Old Testament pa passage foreshadows. You know, with, as me and my elders were teaching through this series, we, uh, we tried to find things in the Old Testament. We call them Easter eggs, Okay. And, which is a popular term for video games and movies. But what we were looking for is those little foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament. We call them Easter eggs. And there's a lot of them. Little pictures of Christ, little typological images of Christ revealed in the Old Testament, or at least shadowy in the Old Testament, and then revealed in the New Testament. And so here's, here's a great Easter egg for you from Psalm chapter 8. Jesus actually quoted Psalm 8 verse 2 during His ministry. And it was a really interesting time. It was as he was coming into the city of Jerusalem. And if you remember the story, he was riding on a donkey. You know, here he is, the Savior of the world, riding in on a donkey, humbly. And he was rejected by all the, the higher-ups, you know, the, the adults in the room, the 
the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders and the people that were praising Jesus, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, who, who was it? It was children and infants, and it was the lowly Jewish peasants from Galilee that praised him. The children, and the idea there is that the children know better than the grown-ups what's going on here. Jesus did that a lot in his ministry, didn't he? He's telling his disciples, you need to be more like these kids. These kids get it. You guys don't get it. And that was, that's what happened when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. The, the adults in the room didn't understand just who Jesus was. And God used the weakness even of his great son in that moment to shame the strong. Think about, here's another Easter egg for you. Think about how God entered into our world. Think about the plan of salvation. How did God come into our world? God the Son. He didn't come born in a palace. He didn't come as the, the, the Roman emperor. He came as a baby born in a barn to peasant teenagers and laid in a feeding trough for animals. Who does that? And that's how God worked salvation for us, His plan of salvation, even to the place of the cross being humbled so that we might be saved. God uses the weakness of this world to shame the strong. Now, David transitions here in verse 3. Let's look back at your Bibles and let's turn again to the power and the glory of this great God. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, says David, the work of your fingers. Everybody see that in verse 3? The work of your fingers. You know, not your hands, not your arms, your fingers, as if you know, God handcrafted the universe in six days. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Humans didn't put stars in place, right? Scientists didn't hung, hang the moon. Who, who did this? God did these, and these luminaries that we, we barely even have a cursory understanding of. They testify to the God of the universe. The old hymn writers understood this. Joseph Addison, he wrote a hymn called The Spacious Firmament on High. And he talked about how the, the moon and the sun and the stars testify to God's glory. He wrote this, In reason's ear they all rejoice, the luminaries, and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Francis of Assisi wrote something similar 800 years ago. Tell me if you've heard this before. All creatures of our God and King, thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, thou rising morn in praise rejoice, ye lights of evening, find a voice. Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him, hallelujah. What are they saying there? What are these hymn writers saying? They're saying that the luminaries scream to us that there is a God and He created you and He's bigger than you. They're taking their cue, these hymn writers, from David in the book of Psalms. Psalm 8, David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the star, which you have set in place. Okay, watch this in verse 4. This is so key. If you haven't wrestled with this rhetorical question that David asks in verse 4, you need to. When I look at all these glorious things around me, the heavens, the sun, the stars, what is man? In other words, who am I when I look out on this, these glories? 
What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who am I? Little old me. One of seven billion. Why do you care about me, God? That's what he's asking. And if you haven't asked that question, you should. And maybe you felt this before. You know, if you've ever stood before the Rocky Mountains and you, you just marvel at this and you think to yourself, who am I that God, if you've ever seen the sun set over the, the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico or the Pacific Ocean or a body of water and you just, you just see the glory of that, you, you, you ask yourself, who am I? Why does God even care about me? And if you're asking that question in those moments, you know, Hang and I, Canada, we were at, where did we go yesterday? Someplace. The Great, Great Falls? Okay. 30 minutes from here and just, just glorious, you know, looking at the river and the, the waterfalls and the rock formations. And it's, who, who am I compared to all these glories? When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 144, verse 3 says this similarly. These, these verses kind of hurt your feelings, you know? They kind of like feel small. Psalm 144, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? The son of man that you think of him. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Here's the theological tension I want you to hold to. We are small, frail, puny little creatures. But can I tell you something else? We are made in the image of God, and God loves His small, puny, frail little creatures. If you can wrestle with those two realities, then, then you are wise, knowing that you are at the same time small and frail and weak, but God loves you even though you're like that. And God made you in His image, even to rule over the earth. More on that in just a second. You know, whenever, so I've been dealing with this and thinking this through while I've been sick. And I'll, just a little bit of confession. It's good for pastors to confess before congregations, but it's probably good that you're not my congregation. So please don't tell anybody back in my church. When I get sick, and this was especially true when I had COVID, I get, here's the word I would use, I get fussy. Okay, and I get mopey and a little depressed because I'm a pretty, you know, ultra hyperkinetic kind of guy, and so I don't like being in bed and sick. So I get fussy and I get frustrated. I get depressed, and that's not good. But but there is something good that comes. Of that. Typically, I listen to more music than I do when I'm well. So I've been listening to a lot of music in the month of August, September. And there's a song that I've been singing that has stuck in my head that has perfectly captured what I've experienced. And it's a song by a band called Need to Breathe. It's a band from South Carolina. I like their music. And the song that they sing is called Innocence. And there's a line in their song that I just keep singing to myself over and over again. And, and here's the line. I want to rest my weary bones on your providence. When I was sick and when I was fussy dealing with COVID, that's what I was singing to the Lord. Lord, 
I can't even get out of bed today. Can I just rest my weary bones on your providence? You know, I didn't used to sing songs like that. I didn't used to appreciate songs like that. You know why? Because I'm the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm Tony Caffey. I'm going to take charge of this. You can't do that when you've got a virus inside of you that's putting you in bed and you can't do anything about it. And you know what I learned in that moment? You learn stuff when you're sick. It's actually a blessing from the Lord. You learn to rest your weary bones on God's providence. You learn to trust God in the hardships of life. You learn how weak you are. You also learn that by reading the Psalms. You know what, you know what sickness is for me? Probably for a lot of the men in this room, wives don't amen this, but it's, it's embarrassing for men to be sick because we're, we, we're strong. We like, we're self-reliant. Well, David's not done here. Let's keep going. He wants you to feel small and he wants you to feel puny. But remember that contrast, not only are we small and puny, but we're also made in God's image, and He loves His small, puny little creatures. That's where David's going to go for the rest of this psalm. So let's finish this psalm up. We are not as strong as we think we are because, first of all, God's majesty overwhelms and overpowers us. Secondly, because God uses the weak to embarrass the strong. And thirdly, God allows frail humans to govern His world. God allows frail humans to govern His world. David writes in verse 5, and, and you know what? David's been reading his Bible. He's been reading Genesis 1, and that's what he writes about here. He says, verse 5, yet you, God, have made him, human beings, or the son of man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Everybody see that in verse 5? What? Glory and honor crowned him? What's he talking about there? Well, that's an echo back to Genesis 1, when God created, as the pinnacle of His creative work, Adam and Eve. And what did He tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over this world. In other words, you're made in my image and I'm making you kings, co-regents of this world. You are the king of the beasts. That's what the rest of this is. And I know that sounds strange to you. You know why that sounds strange to you? Because you have watched the Lion King too much. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the Lion King lied to you, all right? It's not the only time Disney lied to you. The lions are not king of the beast. Remember that scene where they're holding Simba up and everybody's bowing down? Fiction. It's fiction. You know who the king of the beasts is? We are the king of the beasts. We are the ones that God has put in charge of the beasts. Look at verse 6. I'll prove it to you. David, harking back to Genesis 1 now, says, You have given him mankind dominion. That's the same word in Genesis 1. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. Us, little old us, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God has given mankind dominion over his creatures. He's made weak and lowly human beings. And if you ever thought about it, you know, why us? You know, we walk on two legs and... You know, we're not even that strong. There's other animals that are more agile and powerful than us. Why did He make us this way? Why did He put us in charge of it? This, this really struck home with me this summer. I was in Croatia, and 
visiting my wife's family, and, and my son and I were channel surfing on this TV in Croatia, and we, believe it or not, we actually came across a rodeo taking place in North America, in Louisiana, I think. So here we are in Croatia, we're watching an, a rodeo taking place in Louisiana. It, it was a marvel. And, you know, it kind of gave you a new perspective on it, because I grew up in Texas, so I, I know rodeos, but when you kind of just put, remove yourself from the situation, you're like, that is a crazy, crazy thing. I mean, you, you take human beings and you, you put them on this animal that literally weighs a ton, and you open the gate and you just, you just ride it. Why do we do that? Have you ever thought about that? Because we want to, because it's fun. And, and you might have thought too, like, okay, the bulls, they weigh more than us. They're, they're crazy strong. Why don't they revolt against this? Why don't they start a union, you know? And just come to the humans and say, we don't want to do this anymore. Or just stampede everybody who's in the audience. They don't do that. Because God has put a fear of man inside of the beast, even the powerful beast. Now, there's other things that go on in rodeos that I don't understand. Why we dress up like clowns and run around and try to scare the bulls. I don't know, and I don't understand that. You have to ask an ex expert on that. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. God has given us human beings... Little old us, dominion over the beasts, dominion over his world, as a little way to tell us, yes, you're small, yes, you're weak compared to the galaxies, compared to the God who created you, but I love you, and you're an image bearer, and I've put you in charge of some stuff. And that's, that's the tension. That's the theological tension. We are weak and we are frail, and yet God loves His weak and His frail little creatures. And here, this is so important because if you derive your identity from things outside of God and how God has created you, you're going to end up in a mess. You need to know who you are before God, who God created you to be, and you need to know that God is bigger and more powerful than you. And, and so let me just close with this. Here you know, in our world, there's so much confusion because I don't think we read anymore passages like Psalm 8. We don't understand this. And there are some philosophies that float around in our world that are really destructive. And I'm just going to tell you this morning that Psalm 8 is the cure for them. So let me close with this. Just three, three of those philosophies that Psalm 8 is the cure for. Here's the first. Psalm 8 is the cure for narcissism. What is narcissism, Tony? Narcissism is self-love. Narcissism is defined as inordinate fascination with oneself, excessive self-love and vanity. It's derived from the Greek god Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection in the water. And I think it's epidemic in our world right now, full of selfies and social media and everybody's trying to self-actualize. Paul talks about in the last days how there will be people who will become lovers of self. This is 2 Timothy 3.2. The Greek word there is philatos, philatos, lovers of self. So obsessed with self, so blinded by our own egotism and narcissism that we can't even get through to them with the gospel. 
And do you know what the cure is for that? You know what the cure is for narcissism, this obsession with self? The cure is to look up at the stars at night and say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The cure is looking out on our massive world that God has made and, and, and saying, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Who am I, God, that you would love me? That's the cure for narcissism. And I'm so grateful that the God of the universe has given us Psalm 8 as a little reminder to us that us who get a little too egotistical sometime, that we are not as strong as we think we are. Here's the second thing that Psalm 8 cures. It cures narcissism. It also cures nihilism. Are you all familiar with that term, nihilism? Nihilism is a stream of philosophy that concludes that all life is pointless. All life is meaningless. Life, death, religion, morals, it's all utterly meaningless. You live, you die, meaningless. For those of you who are my age, me and Hang, you know, we're Gen Xers, so you might remember the, the theme song of our generation was Guns and Roses, Live and Let Die. That's what we sang when we were kids and teenagers. And there's a nihilistic quality to that song if you're familiar with it. When you were young and your heart was an open book, you used to say, live and let live. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. But in this ever-changing world in which we're living in, if it makes you give in and cry, say, live and let die. Y'all know that song? Th those of you who don't, don't pretend like you don't, okay? Or do, don't. Maybe you don't, I don't know. But that was, we sang that and we believed it. And it was nihilistic. Bertrand Russell, the 20th century atheist and author, wrote once that the universe, as he understood it, is purposeless and void of meaning. He said that the entire sum of human endeavor is destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system. Great. Who wants to live with a philosophy of life like that? Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who everybody knows and everybody seems to love, he said once that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So if you listen to the atheists and the philosophers of our world, that's where you're going to end up. Life is meaningless. Is that true? Is what they're saying true? Fairfax Bible? No, it's not. The Bible does not affirm that. And Psalm 8 says the exact opposite. We derive our meaning from God. I heard this last month about this play written by Samuel Beckett. It's a play called Breath. And in this play, which is only like 35 seconds long, you can go watch it today on YouTube if you want to. In this play, this short little play, it starts with a baby's cry, and then on a stage like this, it, it brightens, and on the stage, there's trash just strewn all over the stage. So there's a baby's cry, trash, and then right after that, there's the sound of a man gasping for his last breath and dying. So 35 seconds, baby crying, trash on stage, 
man dies. Would you pay 200 bucks to go see that on Broadway or whatever? Don't bother. You can watch it on YouTube. What's the point of that? What is, what is the message that playwright is trying to send to us? Life is trash. You're trash. I'm trash. We're all trash. Babies are trash. Death is trash. Life is trash. Is that true? No, it's not true. And we know it's not true because we read the Bible and we read Psalm 8 where God says, yes, we're not as strong as we think we are, but we are not trash. We are made in God's image and He loves us and He even puts us in charge of stuff in this world. And there's all this talk in our day. I mean, this is D.C., so you all probably hear this all the time about self-esteem and human dignity. And how do we define human dignity? And we're trying to find, you know, define it humanistically apart from God. And I'll just tell you, if you do that, if you try to look inside, just look inside to find your self-worth, your identity, you're going to end up in a place of nihilism if you really think it through. A creature cannot derive his or her essence by being a creature. You've got to look to the Creator. That's where joy is found, too. That's where meaning is found. That's where your greatest capacity for love, joy, peace, patience, even fulfillment, satisfaction, holiness, and meaning. If you read the Bible and you know the Bible, you won't ever be swayed by nihilism. And finally, Psalm 8 is the cure. Let me give you one more. Might hit home, hit closer to home for you guys. Psalm 8 is the cure for neuroticism. I'll be honest with you, I, I don't struggle with nihilism. I never have. Never even had a thought that direction in my whole life. And that's, I think, because I grew up in a church where they taught the Bible. And I had Bible teachers who taught me from an early age, including my parents, that life is meaningful God created us for purpose. So I don't struggle with nihilism. I don't think I struggle with narcissism. I don't know. Y'all can ask Hang later and maybe he'll tell you different. I praise God that I didn't grow up with social media and smartphones and selfies. I know that's a struggle for children in our own day. But here, I'll tell you what I do struggle with. I struggle with this third one. I struggle with neuroticism. I struggle with neurotic behavior like fear and anxiety and anger and depression and irritability. And, and all of that comes about, why does that happen? Because I can't control things like I want to control them. And I'm not the master of my own fate and I'm not the captain of my own soul. Ultimately, there's, there's a sovereignty over me that if, in my worst moments frustrate me. God, why do you have to be so sovereign? And you know what the cure for that is? The cure is beholding God in all of His glory. The cure is reading Psalm 8. The cure is resting my weary bones on God's sovereignty. Because you've got to think this. If God created these galaxies and He's holding them all together, you look through a Hubble telescope and you're like, wow, God, God's got things under control. Then He probably knows what He's doing in my life. Because He loves me infinitely more than He loves those galaxies in the telescope. Even as I'm going through maybe a period of suffering or hardship. When you read Psalm 8, you, you remind yourself of that song I used to sing when I was a kid with my parents. It's got the whole world in His hands. I sang that to my son when he was little. Do you all sing these songs to your kids? At night before they go to bed, that's the, base, that's the best place for theological training. Sing these songs got the whole world in his hands. 
Let's teach your kids that. He's got you and me in his hands. And teach your kids to rest their weary bones on God's providence. Do you know Fairfax Bible? In the toughest moments of life, when you feel really, really puny, that God loves you and God has purpose for you. He does, including his church, Fairfax Bible Church. What a great place. God's doing his work here. Do you know when Satan, do you meditate on this, when Satan whispers narcissistic and nihilistic and neurotic thoughts into your ear? Do you know how to combat that? Let me encourage you to combat it with Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Can we stand together? Lord, you are glorious. You are majestic. Jesus Christ, we give you praise as creator of this world and redeemer, Lord, we testify as the church of Jesus Christ that it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can abide in you and we can live for eternity with you, Jesus. You are our maker. You are our creator. You created this universe and you also saved us, Lord. Receive our praise. Amen.